Just checking out to see how sleep-deprived y'all look. <laughs> it was terrible. I knew I had to lose an hour of sleep last night, so I compensated by not being able to get to sleep for like three or four hours. So uh, if I put myself to sleep preaching, just kind of nudge me. <laughs> Reminds me of the story of the pastor who... Uh, dreamed he was preaching and awoke and discovered that he was. <laughs> if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Continue to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount in which Jesus is teaching us about His kingdom, what it means to be a part of His kingdom, and to live our lives according to His standards, His values, His priorities. Jesus said there's something we need to be a part of His kingdom. And that thing we need to be a part of His kingdom is righteousness. Being right with God. Measuring up to God's standards. And it's to be a righteousness that goes deep, a genuine righteousness. And the only way we can have that righteousness is to admit we don't have it on our own. And we need to ask Jesus for it. He died, rose from the grave to give it to us. And then to rely on Him, to enable Him to enable us uh, to, to live that righteousness out in, in every area of life. And um, as we go through this sermon, it's like every step we take, uh, we discover a new area of our life that needs... His transforming work. It, it reminds me of, of a home, a house inspection. If you're buying a house, you get this inspector guy to come in and, and look it all over for you. And, you know, you look around and you, you know the things that you can see, the obvious stuff. You know the stuff that needs attention. And then this guy gets in there and he starts poking around and getting in every nook and cranny, goes down the crawl space, gets up in the attic, and he finds all this other stuff that you've got to deal with, that you've got to take care of. That's what this sermon's like. It just keeps uncovering you know, new areas of our lives that we maybe weren't really thinking needed that much attention, and yet the Lord is showing us where here's another part of us where God's standard for what is good and what is right is, is so much higher than, than what we have, what we are. And so we need Him to transform us. We need to give that to Him. So the, the part of our lives that Jesus uncovers in our passage for today has to do with how we relate to people who oppose us. People who treat us as enemies. Do you realize that if, if today you're here and you are a believer in Jesus, you are a follower of Jesus, 
Do you realize that there are uh, people who regard you as an enemy? No joke. I mean, they think that what you believe is not only silly, foolish, stupid, but downright dangerous. And so you need to be opposed. You need to be resisted. Now, this is not anything new. I mean, read through the New Testament, read world history, and you'll find that there have always been people who regard Jesus and his followers as enemies. Some have been powerful, some not so powerful, some kind of annoying, some downright deadly. And Jesus told us to expect this. He told us to expect, because we belong to him, to be opposed, to have enemies, people who treat us that way. And then he told us how to relate to our enemies, how he wants us to respond and relate to those people. And what he said is actually pretty familiar. Uh, Many people have heard what Jesus said we should do to our enemies. (laughs) But there is a big, big difference between hearing what he said and doing what he said. And so uh, let's read it and let's think it through carefully. And above all, let's ask him. Let's ask him to help us understand it and believe it and obey it. In fact, let's pray right now. Will you bow with me? Lord Jesus, as we come this morning to listen to you, I pray it would be you that we hear. I pray you'd help us hear your voice. And Father, will you by your Spirit enable us to hear your Son and to understand and to uh, love what we hear and obey it. Will you help us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 43, 43 through 48. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. (laughs) Oh, and as I think so often when I read some of these things Jesus says, I I just, I read it and I just say, wow. Wow. So once again, Jesus confronts a popular misunderstanding of the Old Testament. We've been seeing that again and again in the last several verses Jesus says, you've heard it said this, but I say to you this. And the example we have today, this is a great example that shows 
how our natural tendencies can lead us to misread the Bible. This is a good case study in that. So Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And what's really interesting about this is the first half of that is straight out of the Bible. Okay, Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So that's where that comes from. Okay, how about the second part? Where does the Bible say, you shall hate your enemy? Anybody know? Nowhere. Doesn't say that. Never says that. Hmm. So where did people get that idea? Well, from thinking like this. Well, if God tells us to love our neighbor then that means we don't have to love people who aren't our neighbor. See, depending on how you read this verse, you can actually come to two very different conclusions, two very different ways of reading this verse in Leviticus. Now, if you read it this way and emphasize the word love, so love your neighbor, then the point is how you treat your neighbor. You treat your neighbor with love as opposed to treating him some other way, like the verse says, treating him with a grudge uh, or taking vengeance. Don't do that. Love your neighbor. But now if you read it another way, you put the emphasis on the word neighbor, love your neighbor. Then the emphasis is on loving your neighbor as opposed to loving anyone else. And now the point is not how you treat your neighbor. The point becomes, whom are you supposed to love? See, it's a different lesson. And that's the way the people listening to Jesus were were understanding it. That's how they were reading it. And it's completely understandable. These people were Jewish people, and they had suffered a great deal under non-Jewish rulers, you know, kings and emperors and governors and soldiers. Man, these people had just ruled over them with an iron fist, and they were so weary of that. They were so just beaten down by that. And you know, God had called them His chosen people. So they just kind of figured that meant God wasn't that concerned about the people He didn't choose. Other than planning to judge them for their evil deeds. So even though the Bible doesn't ever say, hate your enemy, they arrived at that conclusion because of how they read the command to love your neighbor. See, if love your neighbor means love only your neighbor well, then you don't have to love anybody else. And if you don't have to love them, well, that's really kind of the same thing as hating them, right? Especially if they're an enemy. I mean, they oppose God. They oppose God's people. So, of course, God must oppose them. And if He opposes them, He must hate them. 
And so we should too. That is an example of the kind of unbiblical conclusion we can reach when we don't read our Bibles carefully. Especially if we ignore Jesus, who said that he's the one to tell us what it really means. He said, I have come to fulfill. So he's the one who tells us what it really means. But you can misread the Bible and then you can come to conclusions that are actually not what the Bible teaches. And this happens all the time. This is going on today. You know, there's this group that calls themselves a church and they keep getting in the news for protesting at military funerals because they disagree with certain government policies. And then they hold up these signs that say in very crude terms, that God hates certain people. And it's obvious that they hate those people. Now, that's very disturbing. But you know what's even more disturbing? That is really just an extreme expression of a very natural human impulse. One of the most natural things in the world is to care about some people and not care about other people. It's what you might call our tribal tendency. The tendency to love our tribe, our people, our family, our friends, our nation, and to sort of ignore or disregard or even despise those who aren't our people. It's very natural. Derry Turner, some of you know Derry. Derry is one of our uh, partners in helping us fulfill our, our mission of making disciples around the world, global disciple making. And Derry works in Uganda, Africa. And not long ago, I heard him tell about a nurse working in a hospital where a man who was severely burned died of neglect. He could have probably lived, but he was neglected and he died. And this nurse, who could have helped him, did nothing to help him. And you know what makes the story even worse? is that while this man was dying, this nurse was busy reading a Bible. Because he was from a different tribe than she was. He was not entitled to her care, her concern. The human heart can be very selective about who it loves. And when it comes to an enemy, you know, not, not just somebody who's outside of my tribe, but somebody who actually opposes me, or somebody who threatens me, or someone who mistreats me. What's the natural inclination there? It, it's not only not to love, it's to actually hate. That's natural. 
But once again, Jesus calls his followers to a much higher standard. And he keeps saying, what's natural is not righteous. Did you notice what he said? Love your enemies. Yeah, we saw that part. Pray for those who persecute you. Yeah, okay. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Then he goes and talks about what God does. And Jesus is saying, the standard is not what comes naturally. The standard is what God does. And contrary to what many of his followers, or those who are listening to him, seem to believe, Jesus says that God does not love just certain people. He loves all people. I mean, John 3.16, right? I imagine you've heard it. You know it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, think about it now. Who, who is this world that God gave His Son to because He loved them? Who are these people? Who are they? Are they a bunch of wonderful folks who just have trusted God completely? Who have uh, always done what He wanted? Who have loved Him supremely? Who have just... Uh, given him all of the honor to which he's entitled. Is that who we're talking about? Is that the world? Not hardly. Romans 5.10. Look at it. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. God gave his son for his enemies. You and I were enemies when God loved us. Okay, so you you have this massive, ultimate display of God's love that He showed us in giving His Son to die on the cross in our place for the punishment we deserve. But beyond that, or not beyond that, but in addition to that, uh, God shows His love to His enemies every day, Jesus says. He, uh, he, He causes His Son to shine on both the good and the evil. His reign falls on both the just and the unjust, especially in the Northwest. God does good to everyone. God does good to everyone. And that, Jesus said, is supposed to be our standard. That's our standard. We're supposed to care not just about our tribe, our people. We're supposed to care about all the people God cares about. Who does God care about? The world. The whole world. You know, last time I was speaking, I uh, I told you that when I read these hard statements that Jesus makes, I'm very you know quick to want to ask, okay, well, what about the exceptions here? Tell me about the exceptions, Lord. And when it comes to loving our enemies, there's no exceptions. There are no exceptions. We're supposed to love even our enemies. You know that a guy came to Jesus one time and he said, what do I have to do, you know, basically to gain eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what are the commandments? And he said, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus says, yeah, you got it. That's good. And he, he, it says he wanted to justify himself. Well, who's my neighbor? Same question. Who do I have to love? 
supposed to love even our enemies because that's what God does. Okay, but what does that mean? What does that mean to love your enemy? You know, we're, love is a very slippery word. And it has a lot of meanings. I love my wife. I love pizza. Do those seem different to you? They really are. Same word. And frankly, our culture uses the word love for things that really aren't. At least not as God defines love. So, okay, based on God's example, what does it mean to love your enemy? Let's think this through. What does it mean to love your enemy? Well, let's start with what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean blind affection. Blind affection. Not infection, affection. Okay, blind affection. In other words, it does not mean having warm, fuzzy, affectionate feelings toward people who are treating us like dirt. That's not how God loves the world. You know, He's not blind to evil. God is not sentimental. You know, He's not just this sort of grandpa who no matter what anybody does is just, you know, warm. And, you know, the, the Bible has many places where it says that God is described as angry at sinners and in some places even sickened by their sin. But unlike us, God's anger is always justified. And it's always balanced by His wisdom, always balanced by His compassion. But God never reacts with just blind emotion. And this is hard for us, this is confusing, because in our culture, love is mainly or even exclusively an emotion. So when Jesus tells us to love our enemies, it kind of freaks people out. Because it's like, what? What do you mean? We're supposed to feel affectionate toward dictators? You know, so if Hitler was still around, we, we should like feel warm and fuzzy toward him. Uh, or abortionists or child abusers. You know, it sounds ridiculous because what we're thinking is love means we're supposed to feel like we just want to go up and give them a big hug. Oh, you're just so precious. True love doesn't mean that. And by the way, it also doesn't mean turning a blind eye toward things that people are doing that are wrong. Okay, that's really relevant today because we are being told repeatedly that if we really love people, we must approve, even celebrate everything that they do. Okay, Pastor Rick Warren has said it very well, I think. Uh, here's his quote. Our culture has accepted two huge lies. First lie is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear them or hate them. It's the only reason you could ever disagree with anybody's lifestyle. You fear them or you hate them. The second lie is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both of these are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. How do we know that? Because that's how Jesus was. Jesus was called the friend of sinners. And you know what he kept telling people? 
stop sinning. So, love is not blind affection. Second, love does not mean uncaring action. Okay, now watch this, because this is the, this is the opposite extreme. One extreme is, well, we'll just define love by how we feel. And then the other extreme, because it's like, well, that's got problems, so let's define it the other way and make love just action, doing certain things. And well-meaning people, in, in, in you know, recognizing that the emotion thing is wrong, well, then let's just take emotion completely out of the equation. We'll just say love's only in action. Love is doing certain things regardless of how you feel. In fact, your feelings are irrelevant. Doesn't matter. Just do what's right. Just do what's good. Do your duty. That's what love is. And you know, that has a certain appeal. There's, there's something about that that sounds right, especially in this culture where people just abandon their commitments because their feelings change. They abandon their commitments. They abandon their spouse. They abandon their family because they don't feel like doing that anymore. And, you know, I have to admit, there have been times when, for me, doing the loving thing hasn't been something I really wanted to do. And I usually end up making myself do it. But, you know, it's not like, hey, I can't wait. So, defining love as an action seems like a good idea. You know, an action that you do regardless of how you feel. The problem is, when you go deeper, you find it's not going to work. And that we cannot build a wall between loving feeling and loving action. Because you, you can't get that idea from the Bible. Let me show you. Well, first think about this. You know, when God loves us, He doesn't love us with an uncaring attitude. Imagine if God told us, you know, I'm only doing what's loving because I have to. Because I'm God after all. I have to do what's right. I have to do it because it's my duty. It's part of the job description. But I don't really want to. Don't really want to do what's loving because, you know, I'm not sure I even like you. How loved would that make you feel if that was God's attitude toward you? Not very. And Jesus showed us that God's love is not emotionless. Okay, look at Matthew 23, 37. Jesus is overlooking Jerusalem. He's on a hill. He sees the city. And he says these words, and I can, I can imagine that he may well have had tears in his eyes when he said this. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing those are not the words of someone just fulfilling an obligation because it's right. Those are emotional words. Those are words of desire, words of longing, words of wanting. Then on another occasion, Jesus confronted some religious leaders of hypocrisy. And 
he quoted the prophet Isaiah to them, who said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Now look at that. Look at that. What were they doing? They were doing a right action. They were honoring God with their lips. They were saying the right things. They were giving praise, speaking the praise of God. But their heart was far from Him. They didn't really want to. These words that they were saying, they didn't really care about. They didn't feel it. And what was the result? God was not pleased with their worship. One more piece of evidence. 1 Corinthians 13.3. Look at this. If I give away all I have, wouldn't that be just an amazing expression of love? Give away everything I've got to the poor. Just all of it. Or if I deliver up my body to be burned, okay? So I go out in some blazing act of self-sacrifice. Wouldn't that be an amazing expression of love? But he says, if I do those things and have not love, I gain nothing. It's possible to do something good. It's possible to do something generous. It's possible to do something even self-sacrificial and do it without love. So it just won't do to define love merely as action. At some point, our hearts must be engaged or it's not genuine. It's not godlike love. Now, should we do good things even when we don't feel like it? Absolutely we should. But let's don't hold that up as an example of what love is. Okay, because it still falls short. Love does not mean blind affection and it does not mean uncaring action. What does it mean? It means doing good. Loving your enemy means doing good from an authentic concern for your enemy's welfare. Doing good from an authentic concern for your enemy's welfare. Love is a heartfelt commitment to someone else's best interests. Say that again. Love is a heartfelt commitment to someone else's best interests. Now, that doesn't mean you have to make yourself like him. That doesn't mean you have to convince yourself, you know, he's really a great guy, even though he's acting like my enemy and being a jerk and opposing me. But he's really a great guy. It doesn't mean doing that. What it does mean is cultivating a genuine concern for his welfare, for his good. Okay, listen, if this guy is opposed to me simply because I follow Jesus, if that's why he opposes me, because he opposes Jesus, then his future is dire. It's horrible. And I should want him to repent and to... Trust Christ and receive the same grace and the same mercy that I have received. Now, how do you cultivate that kind of genuine concern for an enemy? How do you do that? I think Jesus gives us the answer right here. He says, pray for those who persecute you. I think prayer for an enemy may just be the most loving thing we could do for them. 
And here's the amazing thing. Prayer and love, they reinforce each other. Because when you pray for someone, you pray for their welfare, it tends to soften your heart toward that person. It's really hard to be mad at somebody and to hate somebody when you're praying for them. Have you noticed that? It's like if you're really mad at somebody, do you want to pray for them? No. But you make yourself pray for them, you find your heart starts to soften. So more prayer tends to result in more love. And then what happens is the more you love them, the more you want to pray for them. So it's this this self-reinforcing cycle. Pray for them. God uses that to soften our heart. As our heart gets softened, we want to pray more. Pray for your enemy. Now, if that sounds difficult, (laughs) if that sounds difficult, here's some motivation. Remember what Jesus did when his enemies drove spikes through his hands and his feet and nailed him to a cross. What did he do? He prayed for them. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So who are your enemies? Who are your enemies? seems like a strange thing to think about, but you know what? If you're going to pray for them, you need to know who they are. You need to think about it. There are groups, there are people who are utterly opposed to Jesus and His gospel, His good news, and His people. I encourage you to think about it because I think, for me, this is what makes sense to me. The best way to apply this message right now would be to pray for our enemies. So think of an enemy or two. And maybe it's not a person, maybe it's not a, you know, a group or an organization or somebody you know who's just opposed to Christians in general. Maybe it's somebody who's opposed to you personally. Maybe you have a personal enemy who opposes you, who hates you. Jesus wants us to pray. So we're going to do that. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes to pray for your enemies as I pray for mine. And the thing that I'm realizing as I interact with this is that needs to become a habit for me. It frankly hasn't been. And it needs to be because Jesus wants me to do that. So let's bow together. And I'm going to invite you to uh, pray for your enemies. And I'll pray for mine and then I'll finish up here in just a minute or two. Father, I confess I'd rather just kind of go through the day without ever thinking about the fact that there are those who oppose me because they oppose you and your truth and your love. And uh, some of that's based on misunderstanding and some of it's based on just being opposed to you, not wanting you to be their God. And I'd rather just kind of uh, pretend that's not really happening, but it is. And the thing is... um, you have given me and all of us who profess to follow Jesus, you've given us this incredible responsibility to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us. 
So help us do that. Help us love those who are maybe not the people we want to love, but part of the world that you've called us to love. Help us with that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.